You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, saints, have you ever felt that God has no emotion toward you? Have you ever felt like He's unconcerned, that He's impersonal? That he's kind of detached from your situation in this life. That he's unable or at a minimum unwilling to empathize with your grief and your pain because he is high and he is lofty and he is holy. Have you ever felt those ways? Well, there's a doctrine in the Christian faith called the doctrine of impassibility. It's a big word. And this doctrine was introduced into Christian theology in the second century. And functionally, uh, it's been used by theologians to describe God as the absolute uh, regarding what he experiences. Impassibility, M, meaning not, and passibilis, meaning able to experience suffering. So this idea is that God is not able to experience suffering. Now, what does this mean? Well, this does not mean that he has no emotion. This does not mean that he is unconcerned with us or that he's impersonal. It also does not mean that he is unwilling or unable to empathize with us in our pain and in our grief. The doctrine of impassibility is one which describes God as not being affected by anything outside of himself without his choosing to be affected. There's no cause before him that would happen to him and catch him on surprise. All things come to pass according to his divine plan and eternal decree. God, his experiences do not come upon him as our experiences come upon us. And they surprise us and we respond to them. His experiences are not involuntary something which he uh, would react to unknowingly. His experiences are foreknown. God's experiences are willed, and they're chosen by him. So anything that God experiences, he does so because he's planned it, chosen it, and willed it to be so. A totally impassive God is not the God of the Bible. It's obviously not the God of Calvary who suffered in the place of sinners. J.I. Packer rightly articulates that we must learn the chosenness of God's grief and pain as we understand God's impassibility. And I bring this up, this doctrine of impassibility, to hopefully give us lofty thoughts of God for sure, but also because God tells us in his word that he has condescended to his people And he's entered into a a covenant relationship with his chosen people in such a way that he's affected by them. In such a way that he has joy when they trust him and sadness when they go the wrong way. God, who doesn't have to experience anything, has entered into a relationship of a give and take nature by his own will. This being the case, is it possible then that God has entered into a relationship with his people in such a way that he is affected 
and irresistibly pulled towards something? Could it be that he would be pulled towards something that he's chosen to be pulled toward? So if that be the case, what would pull God's heart towards something? Our way of thinking is it's got to be something mighty and strong. It's got to be something beautiful and great. If It's going to pull the creator's heart. Well, what does it mean that God would be emotionally delighted in his people? I bring up all these questions because in Psalm 147, the greatness and the condescending goodness of the Lord are celebrated. In this psalm, we're going to see how God is the builder of his church. He's the giver of peace. He's the helper of those who are in need. This psalm sings of the power and the wisdom of God in nature and in grace. God's delight in us is from eternity past. And that is the reason for our delight in praising him and in giving thanks to him. And so with all of that, to hopefully entice you toward Psalm 147 and all the things that it contains, let's look to his word and let's read it. So if you are in Psalm 147, hear the words of the Lord. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, and abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is God's holy word, and we thank him today and every day. Thanks, just a bit of context, thinking of Psalm 147, and we're jumping into this. Anytime we go to the Psalms, it's important to remember the covenant of redemption, that the point of reality 
Why does anything exist? Because God has chosen a people before time has ever been thought to begin. That he would be with them. He would be with those people. That those people would trust in his son. And they would be saved for eternal life with God uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so time begins with that in motion. And the way that the Lord is going to bring about this redemption is through his son. And even before that, through the little tiny nation of Israel. And so Israel is going to be the people through whom God would build his church, that he would bless the nations by producing the Christ through their lineage. Now within the national or within the nation of Israel as a whole, you had true Israel, those who trusted the promises of God, those who hoped for the Messiah. And you also had those who were not true Israel, those who did not hope in the promises of God, those who did not wait on his steadfast love, but trusted in their own strength. Yet they were a part of the nation, and they experienced blessing just like believers and non-believers did in Israel. They experienced blessing and curse under the old covenant. Israel then, through Israel then, is the church now. The same way that God built, protected, disciplined, and kept through Israel is the same way that he does this for his church and his people today. And so although the terms for Israel over the, uh, under the old covenant, they were more conditional regarding their physical, tangible, national blessings, and for us, his church, the blessings we experience are certainly very spiritual and redemptive, and they are of faith in their nature. Nonetheless, the church likewise experiences its wealth. Uh, in its blessing from God who protects, from the God who sustains, from the God who builds, from the God who keeps and gives peace to his people. And so this psalm and the remaining psalms uh, in, in the Psalter, they seem to be celebrating the rebuilding of Jerusalem after exile. And all of those temporal things, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, even under uh, the Old Testament history, uh, is temporal in that they faded away, and those things served a purpose in its time, but it pointed to something greater, a greater reality that finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so with all that in mind, thinking about Israel, thinking about what is being sung of the Lord and how we can understand that, let's look to our psalm today. I'm going to go through it in pieces, uh, and I'll make it clear which, which verses we're looking at, and then I have two meditations to close our time this morning. So let's look to Psalm 147, beginning in verse 1. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Why? Because it's good to sing praises to our God. Let's just stop there and say amen. It is good to sing praises to our God. And here's another reason. The next phrase says it's pleasant. For who? The verse is talking about how it's pleasant for us. It's pleasant for us to give credit where credit is due. All things have come to his hand. He is our God. Let's praise him. It's good that he be praised, and it's an actual joyous, pleasant experience for us to connect with our creator through giving credit where credit is due, period. But do you ever have those times where singing doesn't feel like it brings this sweetness that, that I just described, this pleasantness? You ever have those times where you're not even sure if, if he's listening, or if my heart is even in the right place, 
Well, two things are true. Without Christ, our hearts aren't in the right place. And because of Christ, his ear is always open. And he has put himself in a place, the Lord has, to hear your praises. Covered in the blood of Jesus and his righteousness, you and all your sinfulness and all your weakness and all your effort, sing the songs here as we gather in the assembly. We sound like a sea of voices, all of us with various struggles, whether family members with diseases or, or different struggles within marriage or, or the, the, the difficulty of raising children and the struggle that that brings with it or just hardship in life, depression and, and different things that we never signed up for, yet we show up here and we sing. And we sing because all is a gift from the Lord. He's all that we have. And half the time, we're showing up to sing to the Lord for one another. We're preaching a song to one another that despite what we're going through, the Lord is good. And it's good to sing praises to him. And so let that be a lesson to us. Like, let's show up and let's sing to our God for he is worthy. It's good to sing praises to him. And it is a delight for us, whether we feel that delight or not. We show up because we know the truth. We know the truth. And so we show up and we sing. We sing because it's good to sing to our God. And not only that, he just follows up in verse 1. A song of praise is fitting. Just again, it's fitting that the Lord be worshipped in all of his goodness and his glory and all of his power and wisdom. And so now we move on for a couple of reasons I've given you some just in general, he's God, let's praise him. But now the psalm goes on to give more examples on why is a song of praise fitting? And we find this in verses 2 through 9. And in verses 2 through 9, keep this in mind. We're going to look at the results of the power and the wisdom of God. In the poetry and the songs of verses 2 through 9, we're going to find the results of the wisdom and the power of God. So why is it good to sing praises? Well, the psalm says, because it's fitting. All right, well, why is it fitting? Well, number uh, uh, verse two, the Lord builds up Jerusalem and he gathers the outcast of Israel. Like I said, historically, this could be pointing to the fact that the Lord has been faithful. He's gathered Israel and he's rebuilding them in time and space in history. This is true. But not only has God built up Jerusalem and he gathers the outcast of Israel, but what comes with that building up of the people? is that their broken hearts are healed, that their wounds are taken care of. And this broken heart here, it's referring to a heart that's been violently ripped apart into pieces. This is affliction like no other. This is brokenheartedness, not uh, a breakup in our relationships uh, with, with things that we've experienced. This is when life is a wreck and our hearts are ripped to pieces and we're afflicted. So not only does the Lord build up, but he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And then we have kind of this insertion in verse four. Kind of stop saying, hey, this is what the Lord has done. Now we go to creation. We go from him redeeming people to just kind of this insert of, and he's hung the stars and given them their name. Not only has he been faithful to his people and takes care of, uh, th think about what's being said. The creator that hung the stars and gives them their names takes account of the brokenheartedness of his people. That's what's being sung of, of the Lord. 
great is our Lord. Verse 5. Abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. Regarding his power and his wisdom, there are no limits. You can't put boundaries on it. We can't even fully understand it. It is that big, that other than. This is our God. For the Lord lifts up the humble. Again, think about how great and glorious our God is. And what does that result in? Israel being built up, the outcast being brought in, hearts being repaired, wounds being healed, the afflicted being uh, pulled out of their affliction, and evil being judged. He casts the wicked to the ground. Verse 6. In all of these ways, do you see how the power and the wisdom of God in our verses is not only being shown in how he's made creation and hung the stars, but the power and the wisdom of God for his people looks like this. He builds them up. He gathers them. He takes care of them. He loves them. He pulls them out of affliction, and he judges evil. How has God manifested his power and his wisdom? In taking care of the weak and the poor and the needy who look to him. That's what we see in these first six verses. But maybe to go a little deeper for a second, thinking about the omnipotence of God, his power. Acts 17 and verse 28 says, In him we live and we move and we have our being. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, everything exists because of God. Everything is because of God. The sovereignty is, is The sovereignty of God is displayed not only in the fact that everything has happened because of him and according to his perfect will, but he has the power to execute all things according to his perfect will. So that's a little bit about power, just a little little bit. Thinking about his wisdom. In one sense, God is truth. Not in one sense. I mean, he is. God is truth. He knows all things. And God always exercises his power in wisdom and knowledge and truth. These things aren't mutually exclusive. God's attributes can't be separated from who he is in his essence. God is truth. God is power. God is wisdom. In these ways, he's very simple. God is simple. He's God, which means a whole host of things. But he's all those things at one time. He's not part truth, part wisdom, part love. And we're hoping that his love is just bigger than his justice. That's, that's, not, that's not what we're, he is all things at one time, very simple. So all that he does, he does purely. Uh, this is our God who is abundant in power and whose understanding is limitless. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You see, God's knowledge and his wisdom, though, is particularly seen in redemptive history. I could say many lofty things about his power and his wisdom, but how has he manifested those in such a way that we may be able to observe them? Well, verse 4 tells us this, right? Or verse 2 and 3 tells us this. He 
reveals it by building up Jerusalem, by gathering the outcasts, by healing the brokenhearted, by binding up their wounds, by lifting the afflicted and casting the wicked to the ground. That's how we know his wisdom and his power. And so with that in mind, how then could we not see verse 4? In the midst of him talking about what he does for his people, there's all of a sudden this reference to the stars. Do you remember what the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 5? That go outside and count the stars. I will make your offspring as many as the stars, and your offspring will be a blessing to the nation. So as we in this psalm talk about how the Lord takes care of the outcasts and builds uh, Jerusalem, all of a sudden there's this, this insert in verse 4. He determines the number of stars. He gives them their name. There is has to be understood in Israel's mind as they're singing this psalm of the great promise that God made to Abraham, which would be fulfilled in the Messiah, in the one who would come to crush the serpent that would, uh, would make all things right again. How he builds up Jerusalem and the dispersed of Israel. Ezekiel 34, 16 says, the Lord says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Similar language that we have here in verses 2 through 6. Even Isaiah 11 and verse 12 says that the Lord will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Yes, this happened in time and place for Israel when the Lord was faithful to continue to repent them and gather them and rebuild them. But all of that finds a greater fulfillment in the Messiah who gathers his church for a final time, once and for all. There is no, there is no hoping this lasts. The work of Christ on our behalf lasts forever. And all that we await is our Savior to return to gather us for the wedding feast. All of this finds its establishment and fulfillment in the revelation of the mystery of Christ. Here, Paul in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And what did he do? He came and he preached peace to those who were far off, and he preached peace to those who were near. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens and outcasts and the brokenhearted and the afflicted, but you are citizens with the saints and you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. So how should we, in our seats today, understand the Lord building up Jerusalem? This is how. Through Christ Jesus, he builds his church and kills the hostility, uh, takes our sin to the cross, dies for their punishment, gives us the righteousness of Christ so that we are now being built together into a dwelling place for God. And so as we see the power and the wisdom of God being manifested in the plan to bring about the redemption of God's people, what do we leave here with? The Lord builds his house. The Lord builds his house. And that's why the afflicted are helped. The Lord builds his house. That's why the wicked are judged. All those who decide to stand on their own merit before the holy God of the universe will get justice. They will get fairness. They will get what they have deserved and earned. Judgment, eternal separation, and judgment from God. But because the Lord builds his house, those who look to his Messiah get favor. They get blessing. They get hope. They get their hearts taken care of by the creator of the universe. They get their wounds binded up. They get their wounds healed and helped. Which is why as we move on in our text, we would ask the question, so then, to whom does God draw near? In light of all of what we just considered, to whom does God draw near? And when he draws near, why does he do it? Well, thinking about what he did for Israel, Deuteronomy 7 gives us a, a big picture of why the Lord draws near and who he draws near to. In Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6, the Lord says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he's chosen them. Why? He says it wasn't because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, actually. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. Think about what he promised Abraham. Think about what he promised Adam. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and he's redeemed you from the house of slavery, slavery from the house in the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Likewise, in Isaiah 57, in verse 15, we read, Thus says the one who is high and who is lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What does he say? I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So what we're learning is, it's not the well-to-do that the Lord condescends to. It's also not because Israel was small and because they were weak and worthless, that the Lord condescended to them. What do we learn? 
it was because the Lord decided to condescend to them. We can't take pride in our worthlessness, and we also don't take pride in our strength. He's not telling Israel, well, because you were the lowliest and the smallest and the most worthless, I loved you. It was no personal quality of that nation, whether by worthlessness or by strength. It was because the Lord liberally said, I love you. I'm going to make an oath to do this. We can see ourselves engrafted in to Israel. The Lord, why, why are we made to believe what we considered a little bit last week, beginning Romans 9? Because the Lord decided that we would. Because the, the Lord decided before time began, you would be his. This is why in Luke 12, Jesus says, fear not, little flock. This is right after he says, Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. He says this, but fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so verse 7, what do we say? Thank you. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving is what verse 7 says. Sing, answer the Lord. Answer the Lord. How? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Make melody to our God with instruments and singing. Why? Because all that's true. Why? Because we know that we're worthless or because we know that we have something to offer? No, because the Lord has chosen to give us his kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And then we kind of move on to consider God's wisdom and his power not just in redemption as we just heard, but in creation. He said he covers the heavens with the clouds, he prepares the rain for the earth, and, uh, and he makes grass grow on the hills. And he gives the beasts their food, the young ravens that cry. What we're seeing is that the clouds aren't caused by accident, God produced them. The rain isn't a miracle, God has prepared the clouds to produce the rain that would feed the earth, that would grow the grass, that would feed the animals. All of this is the Lord's working. The Lord's word goes out into creation and creation does what it's supposed to do, what the Lord has designed it to do. Every drop of rain, every grass grown, it has the print of our creator on it. How limitless is his wisdom? How limitless and beyond measure is the power of our God? And in the same way, he does this for the beasts of the forest, for the ravens that cry in their nest. Mama bird goes out to look for food, finds it, feeds the little ravens in their nest that cry. The Lord's print is on every part of that. It's still very humbling to even think about the creator feeding the beasts of the forest, raining uh, you know, making the clouds to produce rain to, to water the earth. If you had all wisdom and power, what would you do with it? In every piece of creation, in every piece of, of redemption, everything we look at makes us say, wow, praise the Lord. How kind, how generous is he? If I had power and strength, I'm usually wanting to get glory from some selfish way. The Lord gets glory through how he gives good gifts. 
His power and his wisdom is seen in how he gives good gifts to, to nature and to his people. I think that's just fascinating. And but then we get to verse 10 and 11. And this kind of moves us to another point uh, in, in our text. If uh, we consider the nine uh, verses 2 through 9, the result of the power and the wisdom of God, in verses 10 and 11, I want to answer the question, or I think what's being answered is, what causes the Lord pleasure? What causes the Lord to delight? Well, verse 11 says, he takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. But he follows that up by stressing what does not please him. Or, or what comes before uh, verse 11, he, he's actually saying, here's what doesn't please the Lord. And what do we find? Well, his delight, what doesn't pleasure the Lord, is when people hope in the strength of their animals or in the strength of themselves. Think about a war horse and think about a soldier here. The Lord is not impressed with people who have strong horses and, and, are, and are mighty for battle. But that's how we think, right? Big, strong, mighty, it's, it's flashy, it's, 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 it's just like all you see is bravery and, and courage. That's got to impress the Lord. And he says it doesn't. None of that delights the Lord as it opposed to earning his favor, as it opposed to giving the Lord what he deserves. That is not it. He hung the stars. He created the clouds that, that give rain, that waters the earth, that feeds the horse that you are so confident in. He waters the earth that gives you the food, that gives you the warrior for battle, the food you need to even be big and strong. Why would your strength or the strength of this horse impress him or cause him delight as it pertains to earning his favor? It doesn't, right? But think about Cain and Abel. Remember, the Lord required a sacrifice, and Cain says what? Or what does Cain do? He brings what he thinks in his own strength will impress the Lord. Abel brings what the Lord asked for, and he brings it in faith. He brings it trusting that I got nothing to offer the creator, but he's asked for this, and so in faith, and because of his loving kindness, I'm offering it. Rather than, I'll impress the Lord. I will work real hard, and I'll give him something that I think is just really worth it, like Cain. Of course, the Lord doesn't accept that. He accepts Abel's feeble, mere gift given in faith, sacrifice given in faith. So what is the fear of the Lord? That's the answer, right? What pleases the Lord? It's the fear of the Lord. But then followed up by that, I think, is the definition of what it means to fear the Lord. It's not the only definition, but it's one of them. In verse 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Follow it up in those who hope in his steadfast love. They don't hope in their strength. They don't hope in their devices and things that they can come up with to offer the Lord. They hope in his steadfast love. In context, really what we're saying is who wait on his loving kindness. Think about an outcasted, brokenhearted, dispersed band of Israel 
What are they going to do? Let's find the strongest horses and the strongest men and let's take it over. Let's, let's get our nation back. They wait on the loving kindness of the Lord to build their city, to build their nation. They wait on the loving kindness. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Lord, I got nothing to give to you. We, we, we could, they could rule the world, potentially. They could work up all their strength and rule the world to what avail? What would it have availed them to, to, to self-build their city back? Not around the faithfulness, the loving kindness of their covenant God, but around their strength and their might. Who then will they look to to protect their city once they rule the world? Themselves. Right? We've did this. We can keep this. This is human way of thinking. But to fear the Lord is to say we're going to wait on his loving kindness. And for us, it's not to, to go to God and say, Lord, we know that your law is holy and we've done our best. We've tried to live a good life tried to be kind, and we've tried to be nice. We've been very moral. We voted the ways that people think Christians should vote in this country. We've done all the things that check all the boxes that say conservative Christian in America. Surely that will impress the Lord. If We could recover our nation back to what seems like a quote-unquote Christian nation. Or we decide to school our children a certain way or we decide to parent a certain way, or we decide to only listen to certain music. We make all of these rules, and then we go about our lives in our quiet times, in our prayer life, and all these things, and we think that the Lord listens to us because what we have decided to do in this life. And that's backwards. That's backwards. That's looking to our strength to get the ear of God. That's looking to our strength to impress God the Lord, when what the Lord is actually asking is that you see that it doesn't matter what you could possibly do in this life. You could not earn his favor or his blessing or his love, but because he's given it to you, because you could never do anything to pay for your sin, but the whole plan is that Christ Jesus came down and became your sin and was crushed for you. And by his wounds, you have been healed. You could never keep the law. In every way that you look to your unrighteous works to find favor for the Lord, in every way that you are not righteous, the Lord was perfect. And he was perfect in your stead. And because of that, saints, because we trust in that alone, then we seek to live wisely. We seek to live wisely in all of those ways in culture that I brought up. And we love one another. And we love one another based upon whatever each family thinks is wise. So we don't look to what we're doing as proof that we fear the Lord in terms of all of those things. What we look to is who are you trusting for righteousness? How will your sins be forgiven? When it comes to the new heavens and the new earth, how do you wait for that? Do you wait trusting in the king who's bringing it to us? Or are we trusting that, that we're going to build this in our righteousness, in our words? So what actually brings the Lord delight is when we hope in his steadfast love. We fear him. We fear him over our wisdom. We fear him over our strength. 
And therefore, we wait for what he said that he would do. And then the psalm tells us, continuing on, that God has come to save us. As we look to verse 12 and, and uh, 12 through 14, after hearing that the Lord doesn't take pleasure in those who find strength in themselves, but he takes pleasure in those who wait for his steadfast love. It says, praise the Lord. What else would we do? Again, what else would we do when he said, hey, you don't have to work up strength. You don't have to figure it all out. You see your need of Christ and you wait on his steadfast love. It says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, verse 12. And anytime we hear these words of, of, of Zion, we're thinking new heavens and new earth. We're thinking completion, right? We're thinking all things made new. And so the Lord says, or the psalmist says, the Lord strengthens the bars of our gates. He gives us protection. The Lord blesses your children within you and he gives you peace and he fills you with the finest of wheat. All of these things are true for Israel then as he blessed the nation and, and, and gave them their safety and their peace, right? They didn't trust in their own strength. They trusted in their God who promised to give them these things. The Lord followed through, gave him these things, yet those pointed to a greater reality and an other reality that finds its fulfillment in Christ. What is our protection against the, the guilt of our sin? Against a holy God who would justly condemn us to hell? What is our protection against Satan and all of the spiritual forces but the Lord Jesus alone, but Christ Jesus who took on flesh who died for us, who is our righteousness, who is our armor for the battle. But now we see uh, in verses 15 to 20, we see God's word, God's word in nature and God's word in grace. His word in nature, but his word of grace. He says he sends out his, as we read through these first couple verses here, I want to remind us all of, of the, the very common uh, human-like language that he describes God doing very gigantic, natural, cre creative things within our existence. He sends out his command to the earth, okay? It runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down crystals like wiping off crumbs from the table. Who can stand before his call? All the, 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 the rain, the snow, the hail, the ice, the frost. Basically, it's like the Lord does all this just like we go on a run, just like we clean off the table, just like we put on our shirts. Very easy things for us, very normal, natural things for us. But if I asked you to make it snow, could you? Could you make it snow like you could put on a shirt? No, this is how, it's, it's this poetic language of look at how mighty the Lord's word is within nature. All for the purpose of 19 and 20. Well, referring to verse 18, I want to skip over that. He sends out his word and he melts them. 
thinking of all of that, those frost and ashes and snow, just like he sent, sent uh, all of that down with his word. Well, now his word comes with a, with, a, with a heat wave that melts the snow. The wind blows the waters together. The ice melts. This is, the, the Lord creates ice, uh, mountains of ice, and, and melts them with just a brief word, just like going on a jog or just like wiping the table. This is our God. And all of this to serve the point of his word of grace. He declares his word to Jacob and his statutes and his rules to Israel. Those, those statutes are in his rules. They are his revealed word. They are his decrees and his purposes for Israel to bring the Messiah that would bless the nations. He's given that to no other nation. How would Israel know that they're sinners and they need to look for a substitute because the Lord gave them his law. They gave him, he gave them the sacrificial systems. He gave them the priesthood and the covenant. That's how they would know. And he dealt this way with no other nation. Just as easily as he can make it snow and melt away. Just like going on a job or wiping crumbs off the table. I think we should then see how just as easy his word of grace comes to us and gives us life. And it builds us up. It binds up our wounds. It keeps us safe. It gives us peace. His word can do that. If he can do this in creation, how much more could he do that within our own lives to build up his church to one building for the glory of God? So to try to briefly run through uh, these two meditations, that functionally ends our time in Psalm 147. But I have two meditations for us. And number one, I want to talk about briefly God's delight. Is the, the thought of, do you, do you ever really think that God emotionally delights? That, that something emotionally brings him pleasure? We know legally in justification that God is now delighted in us because our sins have been uh, paid for by the Lord Jesus. We've been accounted with his righteousness, and so legally God delights in us. But maybe the other side of this is how God has put himself in a relationship with his people to be drawn to them and affected by them. So have you ever thought about the Lord being emotionally delighted in you when you hope in his steadfast love? So I ask the question, what do you feel that God feels about you? Even as you show up to worship today and hoping to sing to him and receive from his word, how did you feel that God feels about you? The question I've never really considered this way until this week. How do you feel that the Lord feels about you? In the end of our psalm today, understanding the way that he's dealt with Israel, he hasn't dealt with any other nation. The fact that he is delighted to give you his kingdom and to account you righteousness on account of his son and to forgive you of all your sin on account of his son. In light of that, let us embrace this with affection. That the Lord has chosen to deal with us this way. He was not obligated. Nothing outside of him would cause him to react or respond. So why are we a part of the faith? Why do we trust in the Lord? Why do we wait and hope in his steadfast love other than the fact that he has revealed this to us? Other than the fact that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world to cling to his Messiah? 
What is truly more delightful than to receive and to believe the words of eternal life? To be united to Christ, to have a new life to be lived. No longer slaves to sin's guilt and therefore no longer slaves to sin's dominion in our life, but we are slaves to righteousness because he did something. What other thoughts are more desirable for us to have? that for our minds to be filled with these realities of how God undertook our salvation and he stretched out his arm to bring us to himself. Just to remind us that he did this not because we recognized our worthlessness or because we were very strong and mighty and there was something that we had that God really wanted. He did this because he did this. He did this because he loves us. Before, founda- before the foundation of the world, he said, I love you. So I, then I, I asked, so what do you feel that God feels about you? How often, if, if, we, you know, if we keep remembering these things, would we go to the Lord in prayer? Would we go to his word to be refreshed? to remember the Lord Jesus and all of his merits that we own, to remember the wisdom and the power of God and how we're a part of his plan. How often would we go to our Lord rather than staying from him because of the shame and the guilt that we feel because we're sinners and because we're weak? If we had this thought, how do I feel that God feels about me? Well, he sings and he dances over me with delight, Zephaniah 3.17 says that he's chosen me because he loves me. I don't have anything to offer, never did, never will, but has given me the freedom to be a slave to righteousness. Would we run to our Father? And let's go on to meditation number two to, uh, to end our time. Quickly, how would Christ sing this psalm? How would Christ sing this psalm? As the singer of the psalms, How would Christ sing the psalm? Well, number one, I want to offer that I think he would sing this psalm as the one who makes all of it possible. He was promised in Genesis 3.15, and everything subsequent to that pointed to what he would come and do for his people. He is God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, He is the personification of the fact that God's arm is not too short to save the vilest and the wretched. He is the word that goes out, not only to creation, but to his people to give them life. He's the word that became flesh and was broken so that we might be healed. He became weak, he became poor, and he was afflicted and finally wounded and broken so that by his stripes we are healed. And by his word, the message of Christ going out through his church, he builds his people. He calls them, he builds them, he keeps them, he sanctifies them until the day he returns, where we won't need to be protected any longer, where we won't need to worry about having peace any longer, where all joy, all delight, no sin, no evil, will be had in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. So let's go.
to the Lord in prayer.